Hi everybody, this is Ilham Alhi, and you're listening to Unmuted, the podcast that explores deep and intimate conversations, stories, and moments that matter with inspirational people on equity, justice, and belonging in their everyday lives and work. If you're interested in unearthing unmuted topics, people, and ideas, then welcome home. Today we're talking about collective hope to bridge divides among people with John Bob Simple, who is a change maker who lives to build bridges, innovate, and inspire real impact. A sought-after communicator, John speaks on racial reconciliation, resilience, community engagement, and leadership development with over 20 years of experience in the nonprofit management sector. As a keynote speaker, John will ignite your passion to enact change. John is an inspiring speaker who will give you a framework to activate your values, cultivate the leader within, and unify a community to make a difference. We'll discuss everything there is to know about the role of shame in percolating understanding and vulnerability coupled with curiosity to ground our humanity with our white community and also layers of privilege among people of color. Thank you for joining us, John. Thank you so much, Elham. I am honored to be here. I'm excited uh, to have this conversation with you. I'm so happy for us to talk today. I remember when I first met you, I had this kinship. <laughs> I was like, I, I know this person. We're going to be really good friends. And we both describe ourselves as third culture kids, which is a term coined in the 1950s by a sociologist, Ruth Hill, Usim, who wants to describe children who spend their formative years in places that are typically not in their parents' homeland. And thankfully, globalization has allowed for this type of immigration and migration of people to be able to connect to each other. But it also comes at a time where third culture kids can develop their identities that, that's rooted in people rather than places. And I know I identify as a third culture kid. I'm half Filipino and half Bahraini, and I currently live in the United States. I'd love for if you can tell us a little bit more about your background as a third culture kid and, you know, where did you grow up and what was the community like that you grew up in? You know, I love that question. And just to start us off, I totally share the same thing. After we were done having our initial conversation, I felt a kindred spirit in so many different ways, especially around this element of our identity that's connected and rooted in the United States, but so much different than what our parents experienced. Mm. My dad is from Guyana, South America, but he grew up in the UK uh, and then made his way over to the U.S., My mom is not from Guyana. She's Creole. She was born in Frankfurt, Germany, and then grew up in New Orleans. And her family are largely Creole, but we've got some mix in there of Black and Mexican and just a big old gumbo pot, just (laughs) like you would expect from New Orleans. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Uh, And so what's amazing is my parents had a cultural difference that was apparent from day one. Um, What was really important was that they were united in their faith and their faith really provided the bridge uh, to make what would otherwise be a difficult relationship work and work in a unique way. Meanwhile, I was being raised in a community that looked like neither of their normals that they came up with. For uh, myself, it was largely a white community uh, on the North Shore of Southeast Louisiana, a town called Hammond. 
it was nothing like New Orleans. It was nothing like Georgetown, Guyana. It was nothing like Frankfurt, Germany. And uh, that created an opportunity for my siblings and I to come up in a way that was truly unique. And, and when I say unique, I'm saying uh, my parents were navigating what we were walking through every day for the first time, just like we were, uh, except the difference, it was formative for us. And that meant my relationships with my neighbors and the people we went to school with or church with looked very different than the experiences of my cousins on either side of my family. And that created, in some ways, a very different upbringing than I think I would have realized uh, as an adult, but one that I still celebrate today because it's a part of the superpowers of a third culture kid. It says uh, whether it be through language and being able to have multiple languages that you speak like yourself or through languages of normals and ways and unwritten rules. Well, guess what? I got to learn all of those because I was trying to adapt into that new world. And so, yeah, that that's one thing we definitely share. Wow. I wanted to, to touch on something that you said, which is, you know, sometimes you have to negotiate these hidden rules of engagement, especially when you're in different communities. Can you talk a little bit more about what that was like as you're thinking about your childhood and then becoming a young adult and going to college? What what was that like versus, you know, living in a typically a Black community with Black parents and Black neighbors? You know, I can tell you, uh, it was pretty difficult in the sense of kind of where do you belong? So one of the things I think in a world where we are running toward inclusion, that question of belonging is almost the next frontier. And belonging was difficult sometimes because uh, I came from, you know, my dad's end of things, an immigrant family that ended up truly wanting to adapt to the culture that was there. Why? He had to hustle. He had to make life happen in America. And I think there's a lot of folks that are like that. And his experience as a Black man was very different than that of the other African-Americans in our community. My dad was, and still is to this day, uh, a bona fide 100% Republican. Uh, There are elements of his politics that totally disagree with some of the norms we see from conservative circles. But by and large, his politics were pretty clearly aligned in that regard. The thing that's special is that there was still a common set of values, though, that I think held us together, both within the Black community and within those outside of it. But unfortunately, that element of rejection, that element of difference provided that there was a a chasm that I had to cross as an adult to be able to figure out who am I as this Guyanese Creole kid and who am I as a black man? And my dad dealt with that different. My mom dealt with that differently. My siblings have dealt with that differently. But I think as an adult, I had to be able to choose at what level do I want to find those synergies through uh, celebration and culture and those synergies through difficulty and pain. And I think it's both. I think there's both joy and I think there's a challenge inside of finding those different layers of our identity. Mm -hmm. I think the basis of my identity being rooted in my faith really, truly helped me to navigate that. But when it came down to building bridges within the Black community uh, from white spaces, 
I had to make sure that my bridge was connected to both sides of that. And that was a choice. That wasn't necessarily something that came easy because I think rejection from the white community and rejection from the black community is something I wore on my shoulder in, in some unfortunate ways sometimes. Yeah. It's, it's either you're, you're too white, you're not black enough or the opposite. And it seems there were some protective factors like that held you and your family together. And you talk about faith as, as one example of that. How did you create that bridge that you connected to your white counterparts? So some folks would say it would be language, culture, movies, art, even like the vernacular of language, of being able to like adapt. And so I'm curious about what are those mechanisms that you have or that you've seen in your family in order to adapt? One of those mechanisms, I think, in adaptation really goes back down to understanding, man, what is my purpose? And I think pretty early on, the language of being a bridge builder was something that I had to really embrace or I was given the opportunity to embrace. Because I think whenever you are trying to identify how you're going to relate to a larger world, the questions start to come down to is what's normal, what's going to be normal for me, and how will we embrace people that are outside of me? What are the things that are important for me to be able to have and to learn? I think about the fact that one of the elements that I didn't know to call it this uh, until, until I did some research myself was code switching. Right. Understanding, okay, what's my time and what's my place and what am I trying to accomplish here? And there's a chance of you can lose yourself in this, but it, it can also be very much so a strength that you get to utilize, whether it be in the workplace or in a new environment. So as an example, I think it's important if I'm in a new space to learn how to say someone's name. Yeah. Why people butchered my name my whole childhood. Okay, let me tell you what, like I went from, I have this name, my grandfather on my mom's side, his name is John Quincy Adams, right? I mean, just the most American born bred presidential great. My dad's name is Keith Wendell Bob Simple. Uh, my grandfather, John Stephen Bob Simple, the first. Um, my my great grandfather Josiah Bob, I mean Moses Josiah Bob. These names are just rich. Yeah. And then folks from the south call me John Bob. So <laughs> all, all of a sudden you go from this ability to literally feel as if I am. I mean, my grandfather would say stuff like, "I am, I am ruler of all I survey." You know, just. <laughs> This this man who walks, as my dad would say, Rutherford Kipling's quote, uh, walk with kings and have a common touch. And my name is Jabob. Huh? Are you kidding me? Well, all of a sudden I have to realize I experienced that early on as a kid. And so that means I can put that in my pocket because my dad was called Keith Bob. And he used it as a way to engage people and put a smile on their face and say, you didn't get it right, but guess what? I want you to remember my name and I want you to feel good about the interaction you have with me. And there was a thing about who he was that made him this ambassador to new people that he had never met. I take that as a privilege, even though I have to correct people to say, just stop at John's. It's all right. 
I have to remember that that's a gift. A second gift that I think about in the realm of not just code switching, but also realizing that having that degree of curiosity is such a gift, right? Whenever you come from the same place and everybody around you is the same, you oftentimes assume that the world is such a different place. But whenever you come up in a culture that is so different from your own, every opportunity is a chance for exploration. And so that change for exploration means I'm going to find myself finding every commonality I can with you. A quick story to tell. I have a Lebanese friend. His name is Christian Daoud. Uh, Christian and I were waiters at the Marriott Hotel in Tulsa, Oklahoma. One day I was telling him my story and I was telling him all about the experience of being black in the South, but being rejected by both black and white people and trying to find myself. And he went on to tell me his story of growing up in Lebanon in the 80s and the early 90s, where civil war was ravaging his community and what it was like for bomb scares and all that other stuff. And he looks at me and he says, man, I feel so bad for you. And I was like, wait, what? He was just like, that had to be so difficult. I was like, you had bombs going off near your school. Yeah. And he said, and everyone I went to school with, saw themselves in me and I saw myself in them. Mm -hmm. He said, I knew we were always on the same team with inside my classroom. Belonging was something that was mine. I never had to question whether or not they accepted me. We were all very much so, yeah, boys and girls who picked on each other and all of that. But I never had to question whether or not I belonged. He said, John, I gained different skills from you from when I walked in. But guess what? We share this commonality of difficulty that produced strengths that we never thought we'd need. And so I think that was a gift that I came out of always thinking of what can I share with the person that's across from me that's different from me. And that's something that to this day is painful, but I celebrate it because inside of that pain came some joy. Yeah. It sounded like there was some shared consciousness and shared solidarity with your friend. That, oh my gosh. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. That he was able to own and that you wanted it to own too in your community. And I wanted to say on that thread, because I think that's where our journey will continue to, to stay in, in this course is that there were moments in your life where you had to question your Black identity and what it stood for as part of that shared consciousness. And you describe a moment in your life where you had your friend, Beth, who asked you such an important question that made you pause and think very deeply about what your identity stood for and for whom. Can you describe what that moment was like? Absolutely. You know, Beth is a dear friend of mine and gave me a gift. I happened to be visiting Chicago. Beth and I had gone to undergrad together. And uh, in undergrad, um, she knew of my experience as a Black man being pretty different because uh, the African-American community at my college embraced me sometimes, but and largely expected me to be who they thought of me to be. And that was probably a little too white. Why I joined a predominantly white or historically white fraternity instead of a traditionally black fraternity. And I'd made different decisions in my dating life and all that stuff. Well, Beth, uh, she was white. She grew up in Western Kansas and she'd gone on and got a master's degree in African-American studies. 
And uh, she comes out of that with a degree of mindfulness. And I don't want to call it being awake, but she made a choice. She would learn about people, identify with struggle and run to do what she could to, to heal things. So one day she asked me, she said, John, what are you doing to create agency for other Black people? And I went to tell her, I said, yeah, Beth, I, I hear you, but I'm not an African-American. I'm actually, I'm a Guyanese American. I'm a Creole American. And I go through this whole like description of my identity. And she's like, yeah, yeah, I, I hear you. And then she asked it again. And I went back with the potato bag sized chip on my shoulder and basically said, but I, I appreciate what other experiences are, but I've experienced this rejection and that thing and that and the other. And then she says, but wait, John, you're on the north side of Chicago. If you walk outside of this restaurant and you're walking down the street, what does anybody see at all? Mm. She said, you're just another black man on the road to them. Regardless of those other identities that matter, you're just another black dude. So my question back to you is, with what you have, what are you doing to create agency and opportunity, understanding for other Black people? And that was the spark that started probably one of the most healthy journeys I've ever been on that recognizes that my Black experience may be different and it may be unique to me, but there are all sorts of blessings and privileges and legs up that I've been given. Why? Because I have... I grew up in a two-parent household because guess what? We might have been broke, but there was food on the table that my parents committed themselves to grounding their kids, both in opportunity, uh, economically, reminding us that we could accomplish and change the world every day, that we were designed to be bridge builders in a broken world, that I was given agency on day one, not on day seven, and it didn't wait until I got to school. For someone to tell me that I mattered, it broke me. And I think it made me question so many of my relationships. And it made me question what I could do to help bridge gaps amongst the people that for all intents and purposes, I shared so much with, despite the unique upbringing that I was given. Ooh, I was, I was not ready for that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Ooh, that's a that's a big question. It's it definitely makes me feel exposed and and vulnerable because agencies to me, you know, I'm I'm hearing responsibility, ownership for an entire population, an entire community. And you know, I'm I'm trying to reflect back and you were challenging me to think about this like you know, in how what agency and opportunity are you doing to impact the Filipino and the Bahraini communities, which is the two identities that I identify the most with. And when I think about agency, I think about big, flashy things to do. Big social impact, activist, be on the ground, be a martyr. But why, tell me, like, detangle that for me a little bit. Like, what can I do as one person, you know, with the resources I have? And, you know, what can somebody do about that? You know, I think for all of us, it would look different. But I think one of the, the places I had to start was like, man, what, what do I have right now? Like, what is, what is mine right now that I can share? And I think 
it started a big part was to learn, right? I started to invest and to understand what are some of the out of control challenges that black men are facing across this country and realizing, man, we've got at the time, this is almost 10 years ago, more black men in prison than in college. That there was a pipeline to prison that was going from kids that were not seen as fighting for, right, in in education and finding their way in our criminal justice system. And so I had an opportunity, I was invited to join something called the Black Male Summit, where the Black Male Initiative said, guess what? We're going to do something about it. Okay, so where do we start? Well, we got to learn. Great, we learn. All right, let's put on a let's put on an event. Well, that first year, I'll never forget. We had over 200 African American young men all across our state that we invited to UCO's campus, my alma mater. And in the room on that planning committee, we had what in my mind would have been like these are black men, right? Mm-hmm. Very much so. Grew up in the culture. Very much so. Had graduated. Uh, from, you know, esteemed universities and all these things. And I had this sense of comparison. And then I had to remind myself, but what do I bring, right? Uh, Well, I bring understanding how frameworks work and how systems work. You know, I brought to the room uh, an understanding of many of the white spaces that could help our efforts or could get in the way of our efforts. And I had raised dollars and I had done all these things. I brought my ability. What can I leverage in that room that is uniquely me today? I think that's the key element of creating agency is to say, do I understand the challenge and what do I have to give? I think the second thing, I think about mentorship and the value of what does it look like to just take on one young man to say, what are the challenges you have and how can I walk alongside you? I had this one kid who uh, attended a workshop that I had. And uh, he attended the workshop and I didn't think he cared at all. I just challenged some narratives and stuff inside the room. And it was kind of fun. I was like, I'm black enough. This is great. Well, this kid finds me. I'm walking down the street, 23rd Street, Oklahoma City at nighttime. For anybody else, let me set the the tone for you. This is an art district uh, to where it's not fully flipped over, but it's almost flipped over. A little bit of gentrification, but it's still kind of unsafe at times. So I'm walking down the street into this coffee shop and this young kid runs behind me and grabs me on my, on my right shoulder. And I'm like, holy crap. Like I'm ready to oh, like, no. like ready I got to throw bows. It's about to be a problem. <laughs> I turned around as one of the kids that attended a seminar the year before. And he said, Hey, Hey, aren't you Mr. John? I said, yeah. He said, I wanted to let you know I did what you said. So what would you, what do you, what'd you do? He said, Man, I found somebody who cares about me. Then I asked them if they would be my mentor. And then I told them what my goals were. And then I asked them if they could help me get there. And this is what I'm doing with my life. And it all of a sudden, it punched me in the face what agency really is. It is the ability for someone to know and to believe that it can be different. And through both God's grace and self efficacy that they could help reshape their narrative, that they don't only have to take what's been given to them, but rather they have options, they have choices, they have agency. And I think the power of 
the organized macro, linking arms with other people who care about it, learning about the problem, that's important. But the micro, allowing yourself to be an example, to leverage that which you have in your hands, to offer it to one more. And as my scriptures, the Christian Bible describes, the much is given, much is required. How can I leverage that much more to help make sure that people like me know that there's someone who's earned or has been given that much more and is truly able to leverage that gift for their betterment or the betterment of people they may not ever, ever meet? That's such a powerful story because it, it really tells us the different levels of agency. There's awareness of the problem. There's awareness of the definition of the problem. And then the higher is like awareness of potential solution and awareness of collective action. And with the story of that student who has gone through that to identify the mentors, to identify the question, their career path, that's just amazing because that's impacting one life that can impact even generations of people. And you talked a little bit also about, you know, you had access to potentially social capital in your area. And we talk also a lot about privilege. At one point, we can touch on white privilege, you know, and what that means, but also privilege in the brown and black community and what that means for us. And there's a really good essay by uh, Peggy uh, McIntosh. Uh, she wrote an essay called White Privilege, Unpacking the, the Invisible Knapsack. And she wrote, and, and I quote, I realized that I had been taught about racism as something that puts others at a disadvantage, but also had been taught not to see one of its corollary aspect by privilege, which puts me at an advantage. So a lot of the times we talk about privilege, it's only related to like wealth or economic prosperity, but it actually applies far more broadly. And you touch on this too, when we had earlier discussion, it can be assigned not to just to like population groups. So it can also be assigned to athletes, to people who have financial power, um, individuals who can attain higher level of education, which includes me, or membership to even religious groups. I wonder like, to what extent that kind of advantage that you've had in your life helped you or potentially even like precluded you from attaining agency and supporting others to attain agency? I feel like each of us has a set of circumstances that we can control and those that we can't control. The first time that I started to talk about privilege in an uncomfortable environment, I was at a predominantly white church uh, where a friend of mine was the, the pastor. And, you know, this was um, uh, 2019. And he starts off our conversation with this, this congregation. He's like, so John, tell me about white privilege. <laughs> And I remember being like, bruh, I had no idea that question was the first one. And that's that's the moment I was like, all right, whether you're my friend or you're not, we're going to know what the first question is at least before we have a conversation. And so we started there and this congregation is looking at me and I'm the only person of not white, uh, like a person of brown of any other ethnicity. And this congregation was so gracious and so loving. And I think they were leaning in. And so I, I said, well, before I talk about white privilege, let me talk to you about my privilege, right? Let me tell you about the privileges that I have. And if you identify with the train of thought, let's see where we go. I said, you know, I 
as I was saying earlier, I grew up in a, in a two-person household. I, I had the, the unique benefit of that the social determinants of health. I didn't say that at the time, but I know that to be that where I lived only aided in my ability to keep moving forward. My father and my mother gave me the ability to code switch in whatever environment. I know what the unwritten rules of business are. I understand what the unwritten rules of polite conversation. I recognize that in certain cultures, the volume with which I speak conveys one thing. And I understand in other environments that the volume with which I use conveys something completely different. My wife and I, when we got married, we were given a huge gift for marriage. And they said uh, that most of your fights will be about what is normal, right? What is normal? You're arguing for what's normal. You're comparing someone's behavior to your expectation of what's appropriate. Well, guess what? My privilege taps into my knowledge of the normal. And then when we start to look at how that normal metastasizes into economic systems, guess what? I end up being an example of the diversity in the room in a lot of places. Why? Because I understood what those normals were. And then I went to tell them, I said, if I snap my fingers right now and we find ourselves in Southern or Central Mexico, where guess what? Everybody around you speaks a completely different language and has new expectations of you in regards to how business is done. And how they see you is no longer as a person where uh, influence or dollars might rest. When Americans travel around the globe, there's always the assumption, hey, guess what? There's the white guy over there. I can probably get something from them that looks like X. Except now the expectation is you're a threat. Or the expectation is you're lazy, or the expectation is you're vulnerable, you're to be saddened. All of a sudden, we can start to see privilege with honest eyes of what are the assessments of how our world sees people? And what are the normals of what prosperity looks like or what trust looks like? Well, guess what? I was given the privilege to understand that world because my parents, my dad in particular, and my mom, because my mom will keep it real. My dad, however, choosing to say, I want to adapt into this new environment like any great immigrant would. Well, he gave me some gifts to understand how do you unlock some of those rooms? When I think about privilege, that's what I think about. And I think when we go beyond that, in 2022, Elham, I think you and I got some other privileges that we can think of. Why? Every company in America wants greater amounts of diversity that understands those unwritten rules. Doesn't just want diversity because when that person shows up and they break those rules, that's when that value of diversity and inclusion starts to bend and it gets to the point of breaking. But guess what? That privilege allows me to stand up in some unique ways. And that's one area. I think a second area of privilege that is kind of unseen is in corporate America that if my predominantly white friends who identify as Christians go and share about their faith, some people might hear oppression. They might hear exclusion. But when I do it, they think of, especially if they don't share that faith, they think of Dr. King. They think of the struggle. That black privilege, when I talk about faith, is a completely different image, even though I didn't grow up in the black tradition. 
So I think at each of those different places, there's an introduction of those normals, those accepted ways of doing things that give me a leg up in social, in economic, in business. And, and sometimes it's a leg up that I own, I earned. A lot of times it's something that was given to me. Mm-hmm. And I think it's something that we can invite all of us to say, what is a normal that I take for granted that is helping me? And then what are those macro stories that may be helping me that I don't even see. When you volunteered to that pastor and you said, you know, here are my privileges. My aha moment when you said that was that you decided to share first and to empathize first rather than some typical narratives that would say like, tell me about your privilege. You know, I'll put you on the spot. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and, you know, what I find fascinating about that moment is that some breakdowns and humility like that have to come before we have breakthroughs with, with people. And it seems like, um, you know, humility and empathy, it was a really big part of your career, but it continues to become values in your lifelong career in, you know, nonprofit organization management, even your work um previously in in regional food banks in Oklahoma and and community and team building. And I wanted to touch on this idea that you talk about curiosity and a sense of humility. And I want to share with you the opposite. So collective rage is, is this idea that anger can fuel moments and conversations like this in order for communities, organizations, and even countries to be able to shift systems and to shift policies and processes and eventually to create social movements that can overhaul the status quo. Anger has become like a pretty predominant emotion to be able to shift conversation. We've seen that happen, you know, in 2020 with social uh, unjust movement and and that's part of collective rage. And that's where we harness, you know, individual rage that turns into community rage. But you talk about something else, which is collective hope that's driven by ideals and, and, and values and principles rooted in, in empathy and specifically into curiosity. And I want you to talk a little bit more about, you know, conversations that you've had in the past where you've had deep empathetic conversations with a friend of yours, Steve, who is white, and you've had these conversations and difficult ones too that require us to like unravel information and history and potential trauma on their whiteness. And can you tell me a little bit more what those conversations were and why did you decide to lead with, with empathy? You know, I, I think uh, for any of your listeners, Steve is is a is a placeholder name to reflect on the fact that like we all have to have that safe space to be honest. You know, I believe that there's no change in shame, and uh, whenever we use shame, it it has a, a life cycle that will only produce one of two things. Uh, often. Um, For some people, shame can produce our eyes being open and guilt coming about that says, man, I want to do something about this. But oftentimes it can just push people away. I think in this conversation that we're referencing, my friend was honest about, hey, John, 
I don't get it. I don't see it. I don't understand. Hey, guess what? When I see these things on the news, they're external from me. I don't recognize myself as part of the problem. I don't, I don't connect those dots. I, I don't see what you see. And I think the modern or current use in response to that is shame. Hey, guess what? You should know better. Now you should do better. Hey, guess what? Yeah. If you don't, if we've been through 2020, if you can't see this, then guess what? You're bro- like, there's so many responses. And I think in collective anger, we are making real, righteous, absolute change that is necessary and important for this moment in our culture. And yet, and yet, when I sit myself down and I think about, man, what's it like when I can't see something in somebody? What is the, what's a blind spot? See, a blind spot actually says, it doesn't matter if I have two eyes and rear view mirror, there's a spot around my vehicle that can have me crash into people because I'm blind to it. Well, I know what that's like. One of the ways that I empathize with Steve that day is I told him, I said, man, I get it. If the whole world was burning down and everybody said it was my fault and I had no idea what the heck they were talking about, I would feel not only mad, I'd be real confused. I would be absolutely befuddled by the fact that all the world's problems are on me and they can never define what it is I've done. What the heck? Well, I started to tell him. I said I recently moved to a community that has a far greater population of Native American people. And when I was in college, one of my Native American friends would tell me all about sovereignty. And he'd tell me all about the proper role of government amongst his sovereign people. And I laughed at him. And that was almost 15 years ago where I would sit there and I would tell him, man, if X is true, then Y is reality. That's not possible. I'm not that. I'm an educated, but I know stuff. Well, suddenly in the last year and a half of being in this community with four different tribes, my whole world has been blown up. A world I've lived in since 2003. You want to talk about blind spots? There's commercials, documentaries. We have an entire education system that does an imperfect job of presenting this, but I've had the chance to learn. I was blind. And it wasn't until I was in proximity that my humility was activated. And it made me become a student. Maybe ask the question of what can't I see? And it made me start from phase one, which said, well, We're almost 17 years in and I've been fighting reality the whole time. I got a long list of things to learn about. So all of a sudden, I think my conversation with Steve was now about, hey, can I invite you into a process of learning? Except he invited me and he said, John, I'm not going to tell you the answers that you want. I'm not going to tell you that I am awakened to everything and now I agree with you but I will keep getting together. That was heartwarming. And at the same time, pretty raw because what you did right there is like when we hear another person's feelings, and in this case, it's Steve's feelings and needs, we're able to recognize our common humanity with them. And the more we hear them, the more they'll hear us and the reciprocal process. And we reject shame. We reject 
evaluating person, we observe what's happening and we give them a space and invite them in rather than just saying the weight of the world is on you and you need to change. And we want to focus on, you know, soul, soul transformation rather than behavior modification um, to be able to do that. And that's what exactly what you did right there. And, you know, at times people are like, would say like, I don't have time for this. You know, I, it's not my, like, why should I do this? It's not my responsibility. Um, you know, as a black and brown person, I ain't got time for this. And so, you know, what empowers you, for example, to stay connected to your compassionate nature, even under the worst circumstances? And, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about even like the harshest reality. I'm thinking about Eddie Hilson, who was, who remained compassionate, even while they were subjected to the grotesque conditions of a German concentration camp, you know? And so how do you remain that, that level of compassion and empathy, despite all that's happening in the world right now? I got to say, Eddie's a great example of someone that can teach us all something. All I knew is that it's cheap to be hopeless. It didn't cost you anything. Our world provides so many opportunities to be in a constant state of anxiousness and anger. And we have to make a different choice. I, first and foremost, as an individual, that comes from my faith, knowing that, as I said recently, look, God's not done with me, so I can't be done with people. Mm. I, Brian Stevenson says that we are more than the worst thing that we've ever done. When I look at climate science as an example, there are people everywhere who are planting trees like tomorrow depends on it because we have to do what we can while we can. We have to remember that our existence in this time and this place is not fabricated. It's not an, an accident. And so I have to believe that at a moment where the light seems dimmest at times, that I have to be a part of building solutions that include truth-telling, that include responses when vulnerable people are picked on and kicked around. It's a problem. I'm not going to act like I'm not frustrated and angered and saddened and tired of excuses. I, I'm there. But I do know that hopelessness will snuff out any chance of change. I do know that anger will not build nearly as fast as it can tear down. I do know that when I look at the future that I want to have for future generations, I want to be on the sides of folks who did everything that they could to improve the conversation, to build the bridge, to heal, not to tear down. And I think there are some people whose job it is to tear down oppressive structures. They were called to go in and through absolute pressure, create change. And there are those of us, and I like to include myself, to be the types of bridge builders that says a bridge doesn't exist until there's nothing underneath. A bridge doesn't exist until there's truly a gap. That's the purpose of a bridge. A bridge is what we show up whenever that it doesn't make sense on either side. And sometimes that comes through hard conversation, but it always, I believe, starts from a place of proximity, a place 
of humility, mm-hmm. a place of empathy, and remembering that I need the same grace that I need to give to other people. I have to deal from a place of grace and accountability. Accountability that says we can't stay where we are, but grace that says even when you keep falling, I'm gonna keep showing up. I think here in the United States, we have a question. And that question is, will we start from a place of hope that tomorrow can be different? Or will we start from a place that says, I must tear down more than I build? I'm hearing what you're saying because anger has a life-serving code. When we judge other people, we contribute to violence. And what you're saying is that when we listen for their needs, their feelings, we no longer see people as monsters. And so you're, what you're using is that you're using empathy, humility, and curiosity in order to hear our own deeper needs, but also the needs of others. And so you're rejecting, in a sense, like life alienating communication and violent communication, and you're embracing you know, nonviolence, like what we've heard from, you know, Dr. Martin Luther King and and Mahatma Gandhi and and their pursuit for civil rights. And, you know, I wonder if you can take us to, to a close and walk me through what that room would look like. How can a person increase collective hope, whether I'm talking to my friend, my neighbor, even my coworker, or even if I'm part of a team in my company, what does, how does that conversation look like? Talk about proximity, but also humility. Is there anything else that you would like to add to that? You know, I think one of the ways that we can help shape that room that you're talking about is to ask ourselves the question of, and what, do, what, do, what is the end that we have in mind? Where do we want to end up? And how can we do something that hasn't been done and start from a place that I think puts you at at risk. You know, earlier you said that sometimes people would say, man, I ain't got time for this. I ain't got got time for it. Guess what? Uh, A a very uh, common thing I hear oftentimes is as a black person, it is not my job to do your work, person who wants to learn. But here's the truth. If we all have that attitude, there's a good chance. There's a good chance that a lot of folks may be missed, right? Now, I agree, it's not my job to do somebody else's work, but can I cross that chasm as much as I can? I can. Can I make myself at risk as a builder? And I'm not suggesting everybody needs to be that person, but to start off a conversation that says, hey, what is it that you don't understand? And let them say, this is what I don't understand. Hey, what does your story look like? Give myself a chance to share my story. A story I often will tell is something that makes me feel vulnerable. The first time I was uh, arrested by an officer, it was for an expired tag. And as I'm sitting next to uh, this massive German shepherd, I am unbelievably mortified because I knew this moment might happen to me. But guess what? It means something a lot more than just an expired tag. Hey, I'm sharing a bit of myself at risk as an invitation for someone to do the same. So vulnerability is a powerful first step. I think a second step is to understand what your boundaries are, to be able to let that person know there's a chance that I might be triggered by A, B, or C. 
I'm going to try to treat you with grace and all of those things, but know that this is where my boundary is. I had a moment where I didn't set that boundary and I got rolled over and I didn't respond well. So I think vulnerability and boundaries are helpful. I think that the third thing that should be present in a room is a common set of, uh, of ideals. Hey, do we share the value of X and allow that to be a grounding place to when that conversation goes to a place where you don't see eye to eye, can you go back to that grounding value? I think that goes a really long way. And then finally, I think we can't do it alone. I think about my plants uh, in my yard. I plant pollinators. Uh, Pollinators are these beautiful flowers that attract bees and butterflies. And their job is to make pollen go to all the different things you need pollen to show up at. Well, guess what? Pollen is needed to grow my tomatoes. Mm -hmm. Uh, Those pollinators help the growth process. I think we've got to grow with other people and find those pollinators in our lives that can help us have these hard conversations that can coach us through them or to ask, hey, guess what? I'm going to have this conversation. Can we get together afterwards? I might be triggered, upset, exhausted. I might need an outlet afterwards. So I think we've got to remember we can't do these conversations alone. And so to identify who are those people who can push us forward, even in the times where it feels most difficult. That's so inspiring. To add to that, it's also, we have to reject moralistic judgment where we say that somebody is wrong or bad just because they don't act in harmony with our own values, but we give them the space as well to understand their own basic needs and where they're coming from and and leverage the type of values that you're talking about. And as you're thinking about largely macro and ending on this is how can organizations and systems in general um, foster and cultivate a culture of organizational healing? How can they start cultivating a collective hope in their organization? Well, I love that question. I think the cultures that we create are kind of redefining those normals and making sure that we have authentic alignment with the values we espouse. Uh, And I think authentic alignment shows up and says, where are we today? Having a sense of evaluation that says on whatever the thing that we've identified as our challenge. Where are we right now? I think after we go through that process of evaluation, invite the people into that space to inform that answer. I remember talking with one CEO and they were saying, hey, man, we're doing doing pretty well. And then you talk to some of their employees and they're like, no, not so much. Well, then one of the number one, you know, top six jobs of a CEO up there with with strategy and business development is culture. Well, guess what? You got to know your culture, just like soil. I've got to test it. What is it that I want to be in the soil from which my people and my business grows? So we've got to evaluate that piece. Then the second thing is we've got to engage all the right parties to make sure that they are part of this. Hey, the soil that I'm growing in, I need to make sure that it it drains well. So peat moss and sand, that's going to help. Guess what? All right, I got to have my frontline or my individual contributors. They got to be involved. My executives, they got to be involved. Hey, guess what? I can't force people to be at the table. I've got to invite people to be at that table. Why? This is going to cost something of them and cost something of me. 
So I've got to evaluate. I've got to have an invitation to make sure all the pieces are together. I think a third thing organizationally that we've got to be able to do is have a common definition of where we want to go. We oftentimes talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion, and everybody's got a different mentality or thought around what that means. So we've got to be able to have a common definition, both from a place of where we are, but where we want to be. And that is going to be rooted in conversation. I think a fourth step that's got to be important, and this is something that is probably most difficult. What does the tangible progress look like? What is it tangibly to express our values in an authentic way? And how can we do that together? Who's going to be on the boat that we want to sail on? And who are the folks that say, that doesn't align with where I am? And give people that opportunity to say, I'm out. I think in many of these cases, we want to force this to happen quickly, but we have to know that if we want tangible change, it might take some time. And that time may mean our organizations look different after we've gone through that process. I think when we evaluate where we are, when we have an invitation to have the right people as a part of that conversation, when we make sure that, man, are we... Are we talking about the same thing? We have a common language of what it is meaningful. And then when we look at tangible change, are we willing to look different than when we started and to take the time in order to get there? I think at each of these steps, it can help bolster us that much more. If we can do that with a sense of humility and empathy and a commitment to where we want to be, I think that real change is possible. So inspired. How can folks have a conversation with you? Where can they find you? How can they connect with you? Uh, you can get in touch with me via LinkedIn. I'm John Bob Simple. Uh, check me out. I'd love to, to continue this conversation. There's a lot of thoughts out there. I'm not your guru. Uh, I'm a <laughs> practitioner. Uh, I am trying to humbly do this. And so let's have that conversation. If you want to uh, have a broader discussion about me visiting with your organization, uh, I'd love for you to check me out. I'm with Hawks Agency, hawksagency.com. I'm one of their speakers. I would love to engage with you in that space. Or uh, shoot me an email, john at hawksagency.com. Let's have that discourse because the truth is I would imagine you thought amen for some of what I've said and you probably thought nah bro you don't get it well <laughs> guess what that means that you're different from me and that's a gift and let's discuss thank you so much John I appreciate you thank you for being on the show I'm so blessed to be here thank you for listening to Unmuted subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify Connect with us at ilhamwhyali.com and don't forget to sign up for our newsletter to receive our free show notes. See you in the next episode.